Good morning. I'd like to invite you to uh, open the New Testament, either one that you have already brought with you or one that is in the uh, bench in front of you, uh, to the Gospel of John. We'll be looking at uh, John chapter 3, verses 10 through 21. And um, as you uh, prepare to uh, locate that text, um, let me just set the context for what we want to do during this season of Lent. Uh, Lent is a season of preparing. Uh, It's a season that helps us to prepare for our celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. Lent is a season of new life. Uh, It's a season of hope. And so uh, we want to find and connect with all of those realities uh, over the next uh, several weeks together. And to help us to do that, uh, we are going to be engaging a series of messages uh, looking at different perspectives on the meaning of the cross of Jesus. The cross stands at the very center of Christianity. Uh, It's um, uh, universally recognized as a symbol of Christianity. Uh, And um, the meaning of the cross is uh, complex, uh, it's multifaceted, it's deep, it's profound, and it just brings a ton of questions. So we want to spend some time thinking about all of the different perspectives, all of the different facets uh, about what the cross means uh, to us and for us and uh, in, our, in our midst. And uh, to help us to do that, as Alyssa's already indicated, uh, we want to say not only are there a lot of perspectives on what the cross means uh, that show up in the pages of Scripture, but if we were to have a conversation with each one of you about what does the cross mean to you, uh, we would find a whole uh, multitude of perspectives here as well. And so what we did is we asked uh, a handful of artists to share their perspective on what the cross means to them. Uh, what is the essence of the, of the cross, the symbol of the cross? What does it communicate to you? How does it engage with you? And uh, the, the artwork that we have displayed in the lobby is the result of that sharing. So engage with that and ponder that. And you can um, look at who created each of the pieces and have conversations and maybe even share your own perspective on what does the cross mean to you. We hope that you'll engage these conversations deeply, that you'll be talking about it in your Oasis groups, that you'll be living into it, that you'll be thinking hard about what the cross means to you, to us, and to the world. And we want to do that um, together uh, here uh, during the season of Lent. To help us to begin to set this up, we're going to be looking at John chapter 3. Pray with me a moment as we prepare to read God's word. So Lord God, we do thank you for uh, this time together. Thank you that um, you have allowed us to meet to gather, to connect not only with each other, to see friends and family, but to connect with you. And so, Lord, in this time, in this holy space and on this uh, holy ground, uh, be present and be with us and speak to us through your word. Let it come alive in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So John chapter 3. Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things. I assure you, I am telling you 
what we know and have seen, and you won't believe us. But if you don't even believe me when I tell you about these things that happen here on earth, how can you possibly believe uh, if I tell you what is going on in heaven? For only uh, I, the Son of Man, have come to earth and will return to heaven again. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so I, the Son of Man, must be lifted up on a pole, so that everyone who believes in me will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. There is no judgment awaiting those who trust him, but those who do not trust him have already been judged for not believing in the only Son of God. Uh, Their judgment is based on this fact. The light from heaven came into the world, but they loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. They hate the light because they want to sin in the darkness. They stay away from the light for fear their sins will be exposed and they will be punished. But those who do what is right come to the light gladly, so everyone can see that they are doing what God wants. And we'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. So Jesus is uh, delivering these words to a Jewish leader. Uh, John identifies a Pharisee, a Jewish leader who is named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus and Jesus come together, and they are just sort of doing theology together. And Nicodemus comes in the opening verses of this chapter, and basically he says to Jesus, Look, I see the things that you've been doing, and it's clear to me that you're close to God, that somehow you have a connection to God, you have a relationship to God. I want that. How do I get it? They're doing theology. And whenever you are talking about the biggest questions of life, whenever you start wondering about, is there a God? And if you have brought that question with you here today, I'm thankful for that. Thank you for the courage to ask a good, hard question and to bring it to a place like this. If you're wondering, is there a God? If you are wondering, what is this God like? What is God like? What does God want from me? How do I relate to this God? If you're wondering any of those big questions, if you're asking and engaging in those big questions, you are doing theology. And a big part of our focus on this series on the cross is going to be learning how to do theology together. Theology just simply means thinking about God. And so, listen, even if you say to yourself, I don't even think that God exists. Uh, You're still doing theology. You're still drawing a conclusion about God. I don't believe God exists. I don't believe God is anything like uh, the God that we find in the scriptures. Uh, I don't believe any of that stuff. I don't believe in God. You're doing theology because you're drawing conclusions about God. You see that, right? If you you have drawn a conclusion about God, if you had... Uh, if you have uh, 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 made up your mind about some facet of God and you're living that out, uh, you have done theology. You're expressing what you ultimately believe about God. Now, to say that we all do theology isn't to say that we all do good theology. 
right? We don't all do good theology. So, for example, you might say to yourself, well, all of that God stuff, right? Uh, uh, God is just the product of primitive tribal people trying to account for phenomena in the world that they couldn't understand. And so they created this concept of God, right? If, if these primitive tribal people couldn't understand something that they were observing, they just ascribed it to God, and, and we've just never gotten rid of that idea, right? Uh, belief in God is just a cultural process. And we want to say uh, there certainly are cultural aspects to all belief in God. It's, it's not possible to believe something about God that doesn't come through at least the language of our culture, if not the images and the metaphors and the stories and the assumptions and the goals. Are, it, 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 it's, it's impossible to completely separate one's understanding or discussion about God from what the culture is around you. And we see that in the pages of Scripture over and over again. For example, one of the deep assumptions in the culture of the Hebrew uh, world, uh, the ancient Hebrew world, was that gods are tribal deities, right? It's just assumed that if you say the word God, you're not, first of all, thinking about some universal, timeless entity. You're thinking about a local tribal deity. That's, that's the cultural assumption. And that even sneaks its way into the Hebrew way of thinking about God. Uh, there are cultural aspects to belief about God. And, and... To say, though, that culture just settles the issue about God isn't quite to go far enough, right? It doesn't go quite far enough because uh, if you look at the pages of Scripture, not only do you see evidence of ways that culture has informed people's belief about God, but you also find people in the pages of Scripture uh, who don't believe in God at all. Uh, it isn't the case that a, a ancient primitive uh, culture uh, has produced a universal belief in God. Uh, the culture didn't universally uh, produce people uh, who were superstitious or had belief in God or used the God theory to explain things that, that they couldn't see. There were secular people uh, in the ancient world as well. And so it's a very modern phenomenon to say, well, we can just write off all ancient primitive people uh, because they're backwards and tribal and they didn't know any better. It's, just, it's a very modern arrogance to do that. When in fact, uh, the, the actual record says that there's a great diversity of theology, a great diversity of belief, a great diversity of talk about God, even in the pages of Scripture and certainly in the pages of history. Uh, or go further and say, if I believe, if I assume that belief in God is just simply somebody's cultural uh, expression showing itself, then if that's true, if that's the case, if that's what you believe, then isn't it also possible that your disbelief is just simply a matter of your cultural expression showing itself? Uh, shouldn't that uh, possibility be equally explored? So all of that is to say that that. Uh, asking questions about the existence of God uh, is itself a way that we do theology. But doing theology moves beyond just asking the question, does God exist? Is there a God? And it begins to ask questions about what is God like? 
uh, who is this God? What is this God? Uh, what is the nature of this God? And once again, uh, we want to say really clearly that not all theology, not all talk about what God is like is good theology. And by good, I don't just simply mean uh, it's accurate or it's clear. And I don't even just necessarily mean that it's true. But when I say not all theology is good, uh, uh, what I mean to say is that bad theology leads to bad things happening. Uh, Bad theology leads to things happening that almost everybody would agree are bad things. Uh, So, for example, uh, we would recognize that something like violence or terrorism, uh, which are often in our world the product of theology, right? that violence and terrorism are bad things. And even if you were to say, well, my theology says that they're good things, They may be good things so long as it's your theology and you're not the one experiencing the receiving end of that. Then it becomes bad theology really quickly. Uh, So violence and terrorism might be extreme examples of that, but things like division or oppression are are, uh, almost universal expressions of bad theology. Uh, If your theology leads you to oppress somebody, uh, I want to suggest that it's not good theology. If, if you use theology as a, as a tactic for oppression, even if you say, I really believe that this is what my theology leads me to do, uh, and it's therefore good and necessary and required, even if you believe that, uh, you know that it's not good theology the minute somebody else's theology leads them to oppress you. If, if their theology excludes you, oppresses you, divides you, does violence against you, you know that that isn't good theology. Bad theology not only shows up in our culture, but bad theology also also, uh, has a negative impact on who we are. So one one, uh, little example of that, uh, Dr. Andrew Newberg. Uh, Dr. Newberg is an eminent uh, neuroscientist who has a lab at the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, what Dr. Newberg and his lab have done uh, is to study the brains of people who worship and who meditate, right? And what they have demonstrated is that uh, universally, if you are a person who worships and if you meditate, if you pray, um, if you do those things, that your brain changes. And what they've discovered, this is fascinating for me. This is fascinating. Come on. This is fascinating stuff. Your brain changes. And what they've discovered is that the kind of change that you see in your brain actually depends on your theology. Stop and think about that for a minute. So this is what they said. If you are a person who worships and meditates and prays to a loving God, if if your theology tells you what is God like, God is loving. If your theology tells you what is God like, God is forgiving and God is good. If, If you are worshiping a benevolent, good, loving God, then... Uh, on their scans, Dr. Newberg in his lab can see things like changes in your prefrontal cortex. And because your prefrontal cortex is getting wired uh, in different ways and more complex ways, there's actually an increase in things like empathy and sympathy and compassion. The parts of your brain that activate empathy and sympathy and compassion grow. 
when you worship a God who has empathy, sympathy, and compassion for you. And on the other hand, if you worship a God who is punitive, who is authoritative, who is critical, who is distant, who is harsh, if you worship a God like that, if you meditate on a God like that, what they see is that in your brain, uh, the fear centers get hardwired. And the, and the fight or flight centers rev up. And if that fight or flight chemical cascade isn't calmed back down, or if it's revved up too frequently, then you actually begin to see things like chronic inflammation. And you see the loss of things like empathy and sympathy and compassion for others. Bad theology matters. Bad theology leads to bad things. Uh, it can keep you caught in shame. It can keep you riddled with doubt. Bad theology can keep you achingly lonely. Theology matters. There's a cost to bad theology. Now, whatever you think God is like, if you're sitting here today and saying, I don't know, God might be loving or critical, God is violent or God is compassionate, God is present or God is distant, whatever it is that you think God is like, whenever you do theology, there's not only an outcome, there's not only a place that that theology will take you, but there's also a source. There's a place where those ideas and those assumptions and those stories about God have come from. There's a source to our theology. And one of the really important things that we need to ask ourselves is whether or not the source of our theology is credible. In other words, not only do we have to say, where does my theology take me? What is it producing in me? And what is it producing in my relationships? And what is it producing in our world? Not only do I see where does my theology take me, but I have to say, where does it come from? What is the source of my theology? Uh, Is it credible? Is it credible enough to warrant my beliefs? Now, one of the central claims of Christianity, one of the central claims of the New Testament is, that Jesus is a credible source for theology. Jesus is a credible source for talking about what God is like, God's existence, how I relate to God. Jesus is a credible source. In fact, not only is Jesus a credible source, but in Christianity we would say that Jesus is the authoritative source. Jesus is the definitive source for information, for understanding. Uh, Jesus is the fountainhead for all of our theology, all of our thinking about God is found in Jesus. And throughout this series, we're going to do two things. First of all, we're going to sort of just assume that that's the case. We're going to assume that Jesus is the authoritative source of our thinking about God or understanding about God. And we're also, I hope, going to show a little bit about the source of that belief and where does that belief take us? What does that do? We're going to do both of those things. And when we think about Jesus, though, as the credible source of our theology, when when we say to Jesus, what is, does God exist? What is God like? How do I relate to God? When we go to Jesus, uh, we aren't just thinking about his teachings. Jesus is really, really clear about that. Uh, in, uh, in this uh, text, uh, it talks about in um, uh, in the uh, in the previous verses that, that Jesus has been performing signs and wonders. 
the miracles of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the relationships of Jesus, the wonders of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, everything that Jesus says and does is an expression of what God is like. If you want to do theology, you want to ask, what is God like? Ask the big questions. Jesus says, look at me. Look at the sum total of my life. And you'll begin to understand what God is like. And what we're saying is that when you think about the life of Jesus, which is itself an expression of what God is like, the life of Jesus is distilled down. It's, it's, it's intensified in its most distilled, intensive way and is expressed in the reality of the cross. The cross is the culmination of the life and the teachings of Jesus. The cross, therefore, is the, the, this dense, compressed, distilled essence where we go to find out what God is like. So let me just review. This is where we've been. This, I understand there's a lot going on here, right? So, here, so here's the map, right? We all do theology. Everybody's doing theology. We're all making up our minds about God. We're all uh, asking big questions about God and answering them somehow. Uh, the theology that we do has an outcome. The way that we answer those questions about God will have uh, impact on the way that we live our lives and the way that our culture and, 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 and world progresses. Uh, our theology not only has an outcome, but it has a source. There's a place that it comes from. For Christians, Jesus is the source of our theology, and the essence of what Jesus is saying and doing is found, ultimately, what Jesus is saying and doing is found in the cross. So that's where we've been. Now let me show you how Jesus does that with Nicodemus. Remember I said Jesus and Nicodemus are doing theology? Uh, they're asking the big questions. They're thinking about the outcomes that uh, Nicodemus's theology has produced and the outcomes that Jesus' theology has produced. They're looking at the source of that theology and look at what Jesus does. What does he say? He's saying, I'm going to put the cross right at the center. This is what he does. This is, listen to what he says. So Nicodemus comes and he says, um, Jesus, it's nighttime, right? So um, it's nighttime. And Nick says, um, you've got something. You've got something. I see it. It's undeniable. Um, I'm a Pharisee. And so that means by my nature, I'm skeptical. I'm highly skeptical. Some of us here today are skeptical. We ask questions. We doubt. We interrogate. We wonder. Uh, we don't want to just simply take anything at face value. We're, we're skeptics. And, and Nicodemus is a skeptic. And Nicodemus comes and he says, listen, uh, there's something that you have. There's something that you are doing. There's something in your life uh, that I want. You seem to be close to God. And as a Pharisee, I have had some assumptions and traditions and stories and, and expectations about how I get close to God. I, I've been told all of my life how to be close to God. And, it's, and it has to do with structures and rules and behaviors. It has to do with a superior moral life. There are all sorts of things that, that tell me this is how to become close to God. And he says, but 
but I've not seen it that produce in my life anything like what I see in your life, Jesus. I don't see anything like what I see in you. I don't see anybody as close to God as you. And, and even though he can't quite connect his traditions and his assumptions and his culture with what he's seeing in Jesus because Jesus doesn't fit any of those expectations, he, he, he knows that there's something here that doesn't compute. And so he has the integrity to come and ask Jesus himself. He says, tell me about this deal where you're so close to God. And Jesus knows that that's what he's asking. Because Jesus says, look, if you want to see the kingdom of God, right? and in the scripture, the kingdom of God is shorthand. And the kingdom of God means uh, if you are in the kingdom of God, you've been put right with God, you are at one with God, uh, you are in relationship with God, you are in the presence of God, you're walking in the power of God's spirit. All of those things happen when you're living in the kingdom. If you, if you want to get into the kingdom, he says, Jesus says, you have to be born again. And Nick, the lawyer, says, um, so I was confused before, but now I'm really confused because I don't, I don't think that's possible. How is it possible? How can I be possibly born again? And, and Jesus is going to say, listen, if you want to hear what I'm going to say about this, uh, you have to be willing to set aside your cherished traditions and your assumptions. You've got to be willing to set those aside. And, and you have to be willing to question your skepticism. So let me, let me just invite you to do the same thing. If you want to hear Jesus' answer, how do I become close to God? How do I have the life that I see Jesus living? How do I, how do I walk in God's kingdom how do I live fully alive? If we're going to hear Jesus' answer, we have to be willing to set aside our cherished traditions, our assumptions, our stories. We have to be, we have to be willing to set that aside for a moment. If you decide to take it back, you can grab it again. Set it aside. And we have to be willing to question our skepticism. We have to be willing to question our skepticism about Jesus question our skepticism about God, question our skepticism about what's possible. We have to be willing to do both of those things. And when we, when we set that tradition aside and we set aside our skepticism, fundamentally Jesus says, listen, you're going to be born again. You're going to have a new life. You're going to be born into a new kind of living. And if you don't understand all the details, and there are lots of details here, details that over the course of our study together, uh, hopefully we'll come into some focus for you. The, the presence of the Spirit, the presence of water and baptism and blood and all of these features, all of it is in here. It's very dense. It's very confusing. It's very mysterious. And if you scratch your head, you're not alone. Nicodemus is a really smart guy, and he doesn't get it either. And he has Jesus explaining it to him, not me. And, Jesus, and, and Nicodemus says, I don't understand. Tell me. And Jesus says, basically, this is what you need to do. And then he says this. He says, look, just like Moses lifted up a snake on a pole, uh, so I have to be lifted up on a pole. And when Jesus says that, he's inviting Nicodemus to go way back in history. And there's this uh, ancient story among the Hebrew people 
about the time that they were in the wilderness. The Hebrew people were in the wilderness because they had just been set free from captivity in Egypt. And they're in the wilderness. And they get into the wilderness. And what do they do? Right? Over and over and over again, the habit of the Hebrew people is that they start to get impatient. Right? Get this done now. Let's get this done. Let's get this done. They get um, uh, upset. They get angry. They get hostile. They just get nasty to God. Right? They're nasty people to God. And uh, on one occasion, they start to get into this habit, this routine, this expression towards God. And what, is, what happens? Some, some uh, uh, serpents, some snakes come. And when the snakes come, uh, some people start getting bit by the snakes. And, uh, and the venom starts to, uh, to, um, to have an effect, right? If you've ever seen a snake bite, it's gruesome. And the people are suddenly terrified. And they're like, oh, no. We, we were just nasty to God, and now people are starting to get bit by snakes, and they go running to Moses, and they say, we might have made a big mistake here. Help. And Moses says, I don't know what to do. So Moses goes to God, and God says, this, this is bizarre. I get that. And what God says to Moses is, make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and stick it up in the air. And anybody who's been uh, infected with the venom can look at the serpent in the, on the stick and they'll be healed. And the Hebrew story says that's what happens. And this is the story that Jesus tells. Jesus says, listen, I'm going to be put up on a pole. I'm about to be mounted up in front of people. And when people look at me, when people believe in me, they're going to be healed. Why is that possible? Why is that possible? Why would Jesus be put up on a pole Why would Jesus come uh, in the first place? What is Jesus' understanding? And so he goes one more step. And he says the reason that God has sent Jesus to be lifted up on a pole, the reason that uh, you can look at him and be healed, the reason that you can have new life, the reason that you can come into the kingdom, the reason that all of this happens, the reason for all of this is that God loves God loves the world. God loves the cosmos. The reason for all of it is that God loves. Maybe it's the most famous verse in the Bible, uh, and it may equally be the most misunderstood verse in the Bible. Most people don't think about God uh, loving the world, and they think about the story of Moses and the snake in the wilderness. But that's the, that's the context. That's the connection. Jesus says, the reason I'm lifted up, the reason that I'm put on display, is, is, is an expression of God's love. So you say, I want to do some theology. I want to ask the big questions. I want to know, what is God like? I want, to, I want to know what God is like. I know what my traditions have said. I know how it was brought up. I know how my parents taught me. I know what my grandparents did. I know all of that. I know what my denomination has done. I know all of those things. But I want to know, what is God like? I want to go to the authoritative, definitive source. And you have that source online with you right now. And Jesus says, here's what God is like. 
God loves you. God is a burning, unending, unquenchable, constantly and eternally giving love. So let me say that really clearly. Whatever else we want to say about the cross, and there's a lot to say. Whatever else we want to say about the cross, the cross, Jesus lifted up on the pole, happens because God is loving you. The cross is a demonstration then of love. Some of us have a tradition that says the cross is a demonstration of God being angry or that God is doing punishment or that uh, God is evening the scales of justice. Jesus doesn't say any of that. Remember, we're letting Jesus be the source. We're letting Jesus be the authority for our theology. If we're going to hear what Jesus is saying, we have to be willing to set aside our cherished traditions for just a moment and let that in. What Jesus says is that the cross is not an expression of God's anger or God doing punishment or God trying to right the scales of justice. Jesus says that the cross, Jesus lifted up on a pole for your healing. Jesus says that this is the quintessential expression of God loving you and God loving the cosmos. In other words, Jesus doesn't hang on the cross to convince God to love you. Uh, Jesus doesn't hang on the cross in order to placate God's anger so that God can love you. Jesus doesn't hang on the cross because God wanted to love you. God really wanted to love you. But there was this greater authority that says the scales of justice have to be met first. Justice has to be done. I really want to love you. But until somebody is punished, I just can't. What Jesus says is God already loved you. God is already loving you. God is already being gracious to you. God is already pouring himself out to you. God never stopped loving you. The healing that needs to happen on the cross is not a healing in God's heart. There's nothing wrong with God's love. There's nothing wrong with God's uh, heart. God doesn't need to be healed. God doesn't need to be changed. Nothing needs to be removed from God in order for God to love you. The cross isn't about changing God. The venom is in us. The problem is in us. Jesus says, look at the cross and be healed. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, thank you for doing good theology with Nicodemus. Thank you that all good theology leads us back to you and that you lead us to the cross and that the cross brings us to a loving God and a loving God heals us. Lord, we need to be healed. We need to be made right. We're afraid of you. We love darkness. We resist you. And in this moment, help us to just look at you. 
and find healing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we come to celebrate uh, the table of our Lord. Um, The table reminds us of Jesus who was crucified, broken, placed on display for us to see. Uh, The table invites us to come and to have communion uh, with this same God.